Father, your wisdom is beyond our understanding. Uh, But also, you have seen it right to tell us of what the ministry was all about, what it was like when your son Jesus was here, our Messiah. And we ask that we would learn from the bad choices that the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, all those people in positions of power religiously, all those mistakes that they made, may we learn from them. May we be able also to apply to ourselves this understanding that we would not simply be hearers of the word, but doers as well. So, Father, as we dig into your word, we ask that you would have your way with our hearts. May we be humbly submitted to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week I talked about good choices and bad choices, and good choices were getting saved from our respect. But from our perspective, it's our responsibility that we accept Christ from God's perspective. He chose us before the foundations of the earth. And gaining reward from God by doing works, that just speaks of wisdom that is always good. And then I gave biblical examples of choosing wrong or choosing wrongly. Jonah, Judas, Herod, Miriam, and Aaron, all of these people made poor choices. And then I gave some earthly examples of choosing poorly that ended up costing millions and even into the billion-dollar range. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees made some terrible choices for which they will end up suffering forever. And we want to make sure that we are not doing it wrong. And that's what I titled the message, Doing It Wrong. And we see that there were the money changers making bank off the people. There were the blind, lame, and the children. And Jesus was healing the blind and the lame and the children were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna and jealousy or envy were driving the objections of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then Jesus cursed the fig tree. And of course, in this context, that would represent Israel not producing the fruit that the Messiah expected to see when he showed up. And then, as we will see today, the authority of Jesus was questioned and they desired to stop Jesus. So the first thing, the first decision that they made was with greed. In the temple courts, setting up all of the tables and the buying and the selling of animals and the exchanging of the money. And I express to you how dangerous it is if somebody wishes to become wealthy through the bringing of the gospel and teaching of God's word. We should avoid those kinds of people, and that's especially what false teachers do. So they chose to be greedy. And then the blind, the lame, and the children uh, shouting praise, that was envy that drove them. And I explained this idea that envy is an emotion of coveting, that someone else has something that you want and you mean them ill will, where jealousy is something like you are fearing that you might lose something. They just didn't want Jesus to have the ministry that he already possessed that was rightfully his. They wanted that kind of power. They wanted those accolades. They wanted that type of praise. And even Pilate, as I read to you last week, he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him in Matthew 27 and verse 17. And so they chose to be envious, not only greedy, but envious. And then Jesus cursed the fig tree, and he cursed the fig tree, and it represented Israel, but Israel was faithless. It was not the fruit he expected to see. Matter of fact, just the opposite was there, and I quoted some of the things out of Isaiah chapter 5. 
that they were not administering justice correctly. They were drunken often. They were full of pride, practicing sin and wickedness and changing what was good into what was evil. So everything that was the antithesis of what Jesus would expect to see when he showed up in Israel because they had the very word of God with them. It was just the opposite. So they chose to be faithless. They chose not to exercise those things in the word of God or follow them. And verse 22 of that chapter says, if you believe you will receive whatever you ask. And of course he's saying you can say unto this mountain, be cast into the sea. If you just have enough faith to do this. Well, when we ask God, and I'm sure if I ask for a raise of hands, how many people in here have prayed? And I'm, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many people have prayed for something and have not received it? And you have been praying and praying and praying for years and it has not been realized. I know I have just like you have. And I sit there and I question, why God? Isn't this according to your will? Either that somebody gets saved or something that would be good for your family or for those that you know. And you pray and God doesn't answer. He doesn't give you the response you want. Well, it could be because we are practicing something that adds to the hindrances of prayer. By the way, is it cold in here? Okay, (laughs) now that we're clear on that, I just wanted to make sure. Uh, All right, hindrances to prayer. One of the things that can be a hindrance to prayer is unconfessed sin, that we don't turn to God and ask for him to forgive us. And we know 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I think the King James says he would not have heard me. Well, God hears. He just doesn't pay attention to the request if we regard sin in our heart. And Micah 3, 4 says, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them at that time. He will hide his face from them because the evil they have done. So if there is unconfessed sin, sin and iniquity in our lives, God has a tendency not to answer our prayers. Also, praying half-heartedly. Jeremiah 29, verse 13 says, You will seek me when you find me, when you seek me with all your heart. In other words, you have to put your full effort into making your request to God. If you don't put those efforts in when it comes to your prayer, it's like, oh God, you know, thanks. (laughs) What is that? Be specific. Be short in your prayer. You don't have to go on and on and have this book of an explanation. Do you think God's going to say, I didn't know that? You know, we want to just go to God. God, you know my need before I'm asking. I'm asking you to do, and you make your request known. Or I'm asking you to heal, or I'm asking you to provide. Whatever the case may be, we want to make sure that we just don't do a run on. If you were invited to go before a judge or to a president or a prime minister and meet them, would you just start talking about, you know, at home I have these dogs and we plant a garden in the backyard and there's fruit trees coming all around. I just love my house. And by the way, I spend my time knitting on the side. Would you start talking like that? You wouldn't. You'd say, hello, Mr. President. Hello, Mr. Prime Minister. Uh, judge, yes, your honor. Um, 
yeah, I'll answer any question. What is it? And you keep it brief before God. Not that God doesn't want to know your heart. He already knows your heart. But he wants you to give glory to God. Either it's through confession or making your request known because you trust him that he is the only one that can provide what you ask for. And we do have that reminder. Whatever we ask for, we get if it's according to his will. It can be also that we have a hard heart. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 12 says, They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty has sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. When they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. And, and so if somebody has a hard heart towards God, God, you know I want this done. Why don't you do it? Come on. You have the power. I don't even know why I'm praying. You walk away with that kind of attitude. God says, fine. I'm not going to answer you. That's all part of the, the humility that comes with following Christ. We want to be humble and not have a heart that is hard. Or when we ask, we want to ask it for ourselves. We want to heap it upon ourselves. This is talked about in James chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive, because when you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. God, you know I need that car. I can use that car to minister to other people if you just allow me to have it. And you give me a little extra income to pay for the added insurance. I know it's a German sports car, and, but it's going to be okay. I'm going to go minister down in La Jolla. It's going to be just fine. And, you know, you start doing stuff like that. The Lord knows our heart. He knows if we want it for ourselves. And so if we ask anything just to indulge ourselves, He's not going to provide it. And also if we doubt, James chapter 1 verse 5, if we doubt when we ask God, we're double-minded. And God says, I don't want you to be double-minded. And double-minded is, well, I I think God might answer this. Well, maybe he won't. I'm really not sure. But I'm going to ask anyhow because, well, sometimes he does. But then again, a lot of times he doesn't. And you're just going back and forth. Well, I don't know what God wants to do. So you have this doubt going on. And God says, don't doubt. Believe. And then there is, if men mistreat their wives, their prayers are hindered. Why did God point out this one specifically? Why didn't he say, if wives don't submit, their prayers are hindered? He never says that. He does say, if husbands mistreat their wives, their prayers are hindered. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So these seven things... This unconfessed sin, praying half-heartedly, neglect of the poor. Uh, I didn't mention that one. Proverbs 21, verse 13, if a man shuts his ears to the cries of the poor, he will, he too will cry out and not be answered. And so the neglect of the poor, a hard heart, self-indulgence, doubt, and if men mistreat their wives, their prayers are hindered. All of these things can add up to a hindered prayer life and you don't get answers. What are the conditions for successful prayer? Well, contrition. Contrition is where you express regret to God. And you say you are sorry and you ask for forgiveness. 
course, most of us are familiar with this, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. So contrition or expressing regret in humility, that is a condition for successful prayer. Also, wholeheartedly, I think I already gave you this one. When you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do it with everything that is within you. Have you ever tried taking a large nail with a 22-ounce framing hammer, tapping it to get it started in the wood, and then hitting it with one swing, just going down with one swing, without hitting your thumb? Have you ever tried doing that? It takes all your might. It takes determination. It takes focus. If you don't hit that nail right on top, it is going to sling off somewhere else. It could even come back towards you and cause some kind of injury. Have you seen, uh, I think there's one that opened up right down the street here, the hatchet throwing restaurants. Have you seen those? I, I saw this one recently where this guy, you know, he's lining up like this. He's getting ready to throw that hatchet and he throws it. The wrong end hits, it bounces right back at him, and he catches it. He was focused. He did not duck. Whoa, yeah, I wasn't ready for that. He just saw it coming. He goes, whoa, he just like Thor's hammer. You know, he just grabbed that thing right out of the air. I go, wow, that's being focused. His aim isn't so good, but his focus was great. So that's what our focus is supposed to be like wholeheartedly. He was, the guy who threw that hatchet, his heart was in trying to make it work. And then when you do throw it and you hit that bullseye and it's right in the middle, that's because you're doing it with all your heart. Your attention is fully on throwing that hatchet and getting it in the bullseye. Your focal point is right in front of you. And so be determined. Be be focused on what you want God to do. Not that he is obligated to answer any one of us, but by his grace and mercy, he chooses to do so just because he wants to give us unmerited favor, his grace. Then also, we must believe in faith that is a condition for successful prayer as well. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And of course, that is predicated on it must be according to God's will. If you pray according to God's will, you absolutely will receive it. And then righteousness, James chapter 5 or 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So if we live according to what righteousness is spelled out in scripture, God is more agreeable to answering our prayers. In other words, our prayers aren't hindered by that fact. And then obedience, 1 John three twenty two, and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. So those are the hindrances to prayer and conditions for successful prayer. Now going on with Jesus and his authority here, verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Remember, he was healing the blind and the lame, and he also overturned the tables of the money changers. Jesus replied, 
I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they hold that John was a prophet. And you could just, what if I already, they're in this little huddle. Oh, we can't say that. Do you know how to get us then? We won't be able to get him. This is what they're doing, going back and forth. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Do you think that was the truth? That was the biggest lie they ever could have told. And they just did it right to Jesus' face. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. <laughs> And they probably stormed off. They couldn't catch him. They tried to catch him. They were delivering these tests to him to try to trap him is what they wanted to do. And this was a bad choice because it just demonstrated how stubborn they were. Just very stubborn. I told this story years ago. I used to work down in Palm Desert for the number one calf roper in the United States. And he would travel around to all these different places, and he knew I was from San Diego. And he goes, San Diego? He goes, do you know about Lakeside? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do know about Lakeside. He goes, they got a great rodeo there. And I said, they do have a great rodeo there. And this is 35 years ago, and, and you'd go up to his place, and he'd have these... Um, a mock-up cattle because he was a calf roper and he'd sit out there with his rope and he'd spit his chew you know and he'd grab that thing he'd practice on his little model that would be there and he had a healer a dog and this dog this dog would do anything that he would say except be obedient (laughs) and stay in the yard he wouldn't do that and so this this healer he kept on getting out he would dig under the fence that he would put him in and he would take off and he'd be gone for hours. Somebody would call him up three or four miles away and say, I got your dog again. And he'd have to go get his dog. Well, he decided he was going to electrify the bottom of the fence all the way around. So this healer, so stubborn was this healer that he started digging underneath the fence. And, every, and if you know anything about electric fences... They pulse. They're not constantly electrified, but they pulse. And if you grab it at a particular moment, you may not get electrocuted. If you hold on to it, it will surely hit you. And so this dog starts digging underneath the fence. And then it hit him. And he goes, (laughs) and he kept on digging. And it hit him again. The dog would kind of sprawl out. He kept on doing that to get under the fence to get out. He didn't know what to do with his dog. He couldn't train him to stay in. The dog was so stubborn, even though it was hurting him, he kept doing it. These Pharisees are so stubborn, they keep doing it, even though it's hurting him. Does it sound like anybody else in the human race? Like any of us? We keep doing stuff, even though it's hurting us. We're so stubborn. This is a mistake that the Pharisees made. They were greedy, they were envious, they were faithless, and they were stubborn. They would not pay attention to what God would say to them, Jesus Christ and the Messiah. Well, that was surely a lie. 
they knew that he, they only had two choices in response to the question of Jesus. They knew that they would lose the argument no matter which way they answered. And so they just said, ah, we're not going to answer you. And they thought, wow, you just tell us. We don't have to answer you. And Jesus wasn't going to have anything to do with it. So pride and a lack of humility caused this. And the willing failure to recognize Jesus was forefront in their minds. All these dumb mistakes that they were making. Again, they chose greed, envy, faithlessness, and stubbornness. Instead of benevolence, goodwill, faith, and, and being pliable in the hands of God. They just wouldn't do it. And that's a lesson for us. We are supposed to be benevolent, not greedy. We are supposed to be full of goodwill. We are supposed to be exercising faith left and right. And however God would instruct us, if we're right or we're wrong, if we're right, we can say, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. If we're wrong, not so blessed be me. Because I've been wrong, I, I've committed error, and were to walk in humility before God. So the actions that they were not demonstrating was exercising justice, following God's command, being sober, not drunk, honoring God through everything they do, avoiding sin and wickedness, walking humbly before God, all of those things they refused to do. So, so far, the Pharisees and Sadducees have made some bad choices, which led to bad actions. And of course, we have these in front of us, beginning with two illustrations. There are actually three uh, tests that are coming up, but two of them here, two parables, Jesus is directing it at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, what do you think? Verse 28, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said, the same thing. He answered, I will. But he, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is, although he didn't do it physically, metaphorically, it's a slap in the face. It is a cane to their back, a whip to their back. It is insult of the first order that he is delivering here. If you wanted to start designated, well, who's the first son and who's the second son and what is going on with this? Well, the first son would be the tax collectors and prostitutes who heard the word of God and said, ah, I want nothing to do with that. Jesus comes along and say, will you forgive me? They ended up doing the will of God, even though they said at first they would not. Then the second son would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The second son paid lip service, but his heart or their heart was not into obedience. They just said, yeah, I'll do it, but then didn't follow through with that. Now, the first son could also be the Gentiles, and the second son could be the Jews as well. But by direct application here, he said, 
the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and they were despised beyond anyone else in Jewish society. They were on the lowest rung. They would not associate with them. They would not touch them. They would go around on a road or a pathway if they saw them coming. They wanted nothing to do with them because they thought they were so unrighteous and such sinners. And God says, no, they're entering before you. So what an insult this was. And by the way, who is the one that's doing the asking to go work in the fields in this parable? It's the father. They are rejecting the father. Now keep that in mind. Next, verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard and to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretched, wretches to wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to the under tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. And of course, that is quoting Psalm 118, verse 23. So who is the vineyard or what is the vineyard? The vineyard is the nation of Israel. Who are the tenants? The tenants are the Jews that are there. And who did they reject? All the prophets that came before. You know, some people say that God is just so unjust he is so unrighteous let's take it from the first sin you had adam and eve what did god do he showed up and instead of judging them of course there was a curse that was laid upon them but instead of killing them right there and judging them in that way he didn't do that what did he do first thing he did was have a sacrifice he sacrificed for them then after that he would show up It's called a Christophany in the Old Testament. It's where Jesus would show up and he would talk to those Old Testament saints on various occasions. Like, for instance, Manoah, the the parents of Samson, showed up and went up in the sacrifice that was there. And they said, we have seen the Lord. It was Jesus Christ who showed up there, a Christophany. Some people would call it a theophany. There's also Abraham. He had the three visitors. The two angels later went on to wreck Sodom and Gomorrah and judge them. But Abraham saw the Lord and made a sacrifice to him. So God showed up, Jesus Christ, the person that we see in the Old Testament. So he told them the way of righteousness. Then after that, since people began to forget who God was and the whole world became wicked, became violent, he sent a preacher named Noah another prophet. After that, who did he also send? A myriad of prophets 
Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you know, Daniel. All these people, he sent them over and over and over. And God, it's like God's pleading with the people, will you just listen? And they go, nope, get out of here. We don't want you in our vineyard. Just go away. I don't care who your master is. Just get out of here. And they would kill some, stone some who were there can humiliate others and so god repeatedly and by the way those are just the prophets that we know about in scripture how many prophets do you think he actually sent remember there was the company of the prophets and that would could be hundreds or thousands of people who would prophesy deliver god's word and the people still wouldn't listen so how many times did god reach out by the way he reaches out to every one of us and he does it repeatedly so you might say billions of times he has reached out to the people of this world that they might listen and the jews demonstrated that most of us are just saying no i don't want to hear it go away and ultimately they crucified the messiah it's like the parable goes here the father said Certainly they'll respect my son. No, they killed the son because they thought they would get whatever they want after that point. And again, this is another error error on their part. This greed that comes in. They don't want to be ruled over. They don't want to submit to the authority of God. And in this particular case, who did they reject? The son. The first parable, they rejected the father who asked the two sons to go out and work. In this second case, the rejection of the son. Well, verse 43, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And again, this is where the application might be. Well, it's the Gentiles or the time of the Gentiles. He who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces, but on whom it falls will be crushed. This is for us. If you fall on the rock of Jesus Christ, you offer your body as a sacrifice. You make God's desires your desires. You say, whatever you want, Lord, that's what I'm going to do. That is an act of taking your will and crucifying your will. Or I take my will and I crucify my will. And God's will becomes my will. That's falling on the rock and making sure that we are giving up everything that we have and we break into pieces. We become nothing in the sight of God. That's humility. That's what God wants. If we don't do that, if we don't choose to do that, then we know that we will be crushed by that same rock. And Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and that is going to happen to the Jewish nation. According, It was also fulfilled with Titus in AD 70. So they were doing it wrong they were they were not learning the lessons from all of the people all of the prophets that god had sent previously and they weren't getting it right and it was because of their willful disobedience now it's a very difficult thing for jews to hear that you're not doing it right that you need to change the way that you view god and his will and so those who are greedy, those who are envious, those who are faithless, those who are stubborn, those who are like or reject the, the son and also the wretched farmers that are there, 
That is the characteristics of the Jews and those who reject God. We understand this was applicable to the leaders of the Jews at the time of Jesus. And they were not saved as a result. Okay, so we take that and we look at ourselves. How does that apply to us? Are we stumbled? Are we greedy? Are we envious? Do we not want to listen to instruction? Is the world acting in a more righteous fashion than us and we claim to be believers in Christ? If you look at the uh, any local Mormon, are they not moral in their behavior? They're certainly moral in the way that they act and, and they encourage that. And yet they are destined for destruction because they do not believe in Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. And so God says, you know, there's all kinds of people acting morally, but if you claim to be of faith and you're acting worse than they are, what is wrong with this picture? Even 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Galatians chapter 5 tells us <coughs> that those who act in a despicable fashion will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's hard to hear that. You know, when, it, when I'm going through this, I'm going, oh, Lord, did, you know, in my life I've been all of these things. No, I'm not stubborn. <laughs> you know, right? You're, you're just as stubborn as I am. Have you ever been greedy? If you haven't been greedy as an adult, are you greedy as a child? You know you're greedy as a child. How many kids, you set them down to play together, there's a blanket there and they have little toys and they're maybe two years old, maybe not even walking yet, maybe younger than that, and one grabs a toy and the other one wants that toy. So they start fighting who gets the toy. And pretty soon it's a shoving, like, leave me mind, you know, that type of thing, coveting, being greedy. That's us. Envious, I want that. And I don't want you to have that. That, that is so prevalent. Ask any teenager. They wouldn't agree to it, but you can tell it's part of their lives. The teenager, I want that. No, that's mine, mine. And it's... The seagulls, mine, mine. Remember that? Finding uh, Nemo? That's what we're like. And to get rid of that, I think that's why God blessed us with old age. Because we become a little more weak, we become a little more feeble, we care a little bit less about things like that in the world. And when we see those who care a lot about that, we just go, hey, they. It's not even worth it. It's not even worth it, all that stuff. And so when we recognize our fallenness, that adds to humility, brings us into conformity with God's will concerning us. Now, God wants, all God wants is our hearts with sincerity, affirming who he is and what he tells us to do. And our attitude should be like this in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. So we are to be humble. We are to persevere. We are to remain. We are to abide. We are to put our hand through the plow. We are to do everything that God has asked us to do so that when he comes to us, he finds that fruit. We are full of faith. Just the opposite of what the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Herodians were doing. Chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said, Tell them who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquets anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could Uh, They could find both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And by the way, this idea of having wedding clothes, the wedding clothes are the righteous acts of the saints. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. So the filthy clothes are representative of sin. Those people who are in the wedding banquet have the clothes of righteousness gleaming in white. But apparently there's somebody up there that doesn't have on the proper attire, has not been forgiven of their sins. Friends, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless, and the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, there is so much here. First, who does the inviting to become a Christian? Now, I'm not talking about us. Who does it in this world? There's one known as the paraclete who comes alongside that instructs us. It's the Holy Spirit. That's right. So, so far we have seen the rejection of the Father. We've seen the rejection of the Son. And even though it's termed here as servants, the servants go out, it's the Holy Spirit of God who comes alongside and convicts the world of sin and teaches us about righteousness. And if we pay no attention to that, we say, ah, I'm going to have nothing to do with that. What is being said here in Matthew is the Pharisees and Sadducees are rejecting the Father, they're rejecting the Son, and they're rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit. They want nothing to do with all three. And those who consider themselves righteous of being invited into heaven are the ones who are being cast out into utter darkness where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see the error that is just leading itself through bad decision? to a bad end and we want to make sure we're not doing that now he goes on here now we have some 
the first of two attacks, at least there's a third one, a test that comes up after this, where they're trying to trap Jesus. And this is before we get into the next chapter where all the woes are delivered. So first the priests and the elders, and now it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were a political class. They would be like those today that uh, not that they're not saved today, but those who would be Christians that are politically involved in almost the politics take precedent over anything with Christianity. And the Herodians, they could be Jews, but they wanted Rome to be in and wanted everybody to submit to the rule of Herod. They were a political class. The Pharisees hated them. They just hated the Herodians. They have a lot of hate. You know, you have the Sadducees, Pharisees, the Herodians that are there, all these groups. You have the Zealots, all these factions that are through the Jews. Well, the Herodians and the Pharisees are getting together buddy-buddy. Like, how can we fix this guy and get rid of him? They're becoming friends, and they were mortal enemies. And we know that this is going to happen later on with others as well. It says, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, If Jesus had said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, the people would have turned against him, and Rome would have been saying, hey, this is great. Why not? Just pay those taxes. And in the eyes of the people, Jesus would have been diminished if he said to pay the taxes. If he said, no, don't pay the taxes, then the people would have said, yeah, they would have risen up in rebellion, and then Rome would have come after him as a rebellious man and probably would have put him to death. So either way he answers, he's going to have a problem. He doesn't answer the way that they want to answer. Now these guys, I can just see it. We have to have a meeting tonight, a secret meeting. Let's get in here. We're going to find out how we can trap this guy. What can we do? And they're stroking their beard, going back and forth. I know this one. And they come up with, Let's ask him the question about taxes. Everybody hates taxes, even though we collect a lot of taxes at the temple. Everybody else hates the Roman taxes. And so they're conniving. They are malicious in their intent to get Jesus. Now, before I explain this a little farther, there are these things in philosophy when you're arguing a philosophical argument. For instance, if you're familiar with an ad hominem, argument you're not trying to persuade somebody to your side of the argument by the facts in an ad hominem argument you say something like you're just stupid you don't know anything anyhow where'd you go to school that's an attack on the person is what an ad hominem attack is another one and that's called ad hominem fallacy another one is the bandwagon fallacy Like, for instance, the consensus of most scientists is that climate change is real and caused by human beings. That is a bandwagon fallacy. Because everybody thinks this way, it must be true. Whether or not climate change is true because of humans, they're using the bandwagon fallacy. 
Well, what did these guys do here? They used the flattery fallacy. Now, a flattery fallacy, I'm just going to read you a definition. When an attempt is made to win support for an argument, not by the strength of the argument, but by using flattery on the hopes you want to accept, you want the person you're talking to to accept the argument. This fallacy is often the cause of people getting tricked into doing something they don't really want to do. They are using the flattery fallacy. Now, examples. I'm going to read you some examples that I found. Uh, Like, for instance, in a commercial that praises moms for their hard work and then advertises a specific diaper. Have you ever seen something like that? Mom, you work hard at home, and your life will be much easier if you buy these pampers. And these pampers are specially designed for your child, and we know you work hard and you're smart. See, that's a a fallacy. They are trying to flatter the person. That's one. Here's another one. A car, car commercial that says, you work hard, reward yourself. That is flattery. Oh, you're such a hard worker. You deserve this. What about flattering your boss just before pitching a new idea or asking for a raise? You look good today. Did you get a new suit? Oh, do something different with your hair. It really looks great. Something like that's flattery. Now, I don't know how many times you get flattered during a day, but if you turn on the television, every commercial is going to make an attempt to flatter you. Just watch the commercials. You deserve a break today. I did it my way. Yeah, these types of things. How about this one? Flattering the teacher on her interesting lecture just before asking her if you can have an extra day to finish the assignment. You left all that teaching was wonder. Oh man, you gave me some insights. Yeah, yeah, I love your teaching. By the way, I have a question, and you ask for the delay. You, you see how this works? And all of these are fallacies taking place. How about praising your mom for a wonderful dinner just before asking her if you can get out of washing the dishes tonight? Mom, you know I love you. Oh, you're so you're such a good mom. Can I leave early and not do the dishes? That's that's what they do. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing. They think, and this is how they operate, they think we're going to come butter them up. Teacher, we know that you don't listen. You don't pay attention to anybody. You're smart. Let's just ask you a question. And they just thought he would pick one or the other. Their two choices. But before I go on, flattery, I want to talk a little bit about flattery here i have four minutes i'm not going to get into it there's there's more to this flattery thing that we need to know concerning scripture because these people were despicable they had evil hearts on the inside and by the way if you're using flattery last time i talked about flattery is in 2007 and when i talked about flattery and I I met people on the outside they'd come up shake my hand and say oh pastor that was a wonderful message hey and then they'd ask me something and of course it was a joke you know to do that and we know when we're exercising flattery to get what we want now who do you think is better at it men or women (laughs) 
You see, there's an application on both sides. If the man wants something, what does he say? You look good tonight, right? Yeah, uh-huh, that's what he does. And what, if, what about the woman? What does she do? Honey, you're so strong. Can you? Yeah, you're laughing because you know how much truth is involved in that. And we try to get what we want through manipulation, but we're not Pharisees and Herodians. No, we wouldn't stoop to that. See, we need to be careful. It's, we need to read the, between the lines the underlying meaning that has taken place here. If we think we're better than the Pharisees and the Herodians, we got another thing coming. It's just recognizing it and saying, God, you're so right. You know, every time I turn around, your word proves true, and I am proved a liar. But it's okay because God provides his grace for us because we have accepted it. We said, God... You're so good. I, I want to follow after you. I want to be in your kingdom. My prayer for you is that you can recognize the errors of the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, not repeat them. And when you feel them coming from the line of the tongue over the gate of the teeth, that you close your lips and you do not utter those words, whether they're flirtatious or using flattery, or being critical of somebody in an ad hominem attack, or appealing to the masses, the bandwagon philosophy that is out there. And God willing will do so. The man who perfects his tongue perfects the whole body. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for the examples that have been given to us here. We ask that you would continue to instruct us, point out to us the ways that are wrong, but mostly point out to us your grace for those who are humble in spite of all these errors, sins, and wickedness. We love you, Lord, and we desire to love you more. Help us to die to ourselves and live for you. In Jesus' name, in the church sin. Amen.